supposed to be Daniel chapter 9, not chapter 8. <laughs> but as I was listening, I was like, yeah, yeah, this works too. And you know why it works too? This is, how God, this is what God does. If you go on in the, in the rest of chapter 9, they actually explain who the rams are. It's, it's various kingdoms. And, and it fits very well with what we're doing today. I would suggest you go and you read uh, the rest of it and then read chapter 9 because it's a prayer of Daniel thanking God for, for restoring Israel. And, and the reason that this works so well for us today, because there are many rams that arise with many powerful horns. There are many, many empires, many nations. At the time, uh, the, the prophecy that they're talking about, Israel will go on to be kicked around like a football in the, in the ancient Near East there, um, going from one empire to the next empire. And what will happen is from within the mightiest empire of all that arises at the end, Rome, from, from within that will rise the greatest empire that the world has ever seen, and that is the empire of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what it's about. But the machinations of the, of the, of the governments, the nations, right, Psalm 2, um, the, the kings of this earth conspire against the Lord Jesus. This is what we see. We see nations arise and attempt to overthrow, to take control, to manipulate. And there is a king on the throne in heaven, and he is in charge, and nothing is outside of his control. And, and try as they might, as mighty as their horns may be, as many as the goats that come into this world, there is one who slaughters all of them, one who slays all of them, one who overcomes all of them, one whose conspiracy, as he showed on the cross, is greater and more beautiful than any conspiracy that could rise against him. So, that, so what we're going to be talking about today Again, because God is who he is. I hadn't prepared an artillery sermon, given the fact that there's an election on Tuesday. But the text, as we take up Samuel, is an artillery sermon. That's what it is. How do bad men come into power? How are we so easily manipulated? How do do men like Absalom come to the throne? How does it happen? Well, in, in the word of God, it tells us. And why is it telling us? Because what we do is we fear men. We fear politicians. We fear armies. We fear dictators. We fear these things. And so what we do is we begin to act disobediently and we're easily thrown about, as it says in Ephesians, by every wind of doctrine. So what I'm going to do today is open up this text and show you exactly what's happened to you in the last couple of decades in this country, so that you can go and, 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 and repent and act accordingly. Because we have, all of us, been taken in by Absalom's uh, for as long as I've been around. Uh, in 1981, I was born. I can, I can list the Absalom's who have ruled this country since then. And we have all been taken in by them. We've been seduced by them and manipulated by them. And it's time, I think, for us to repent and turn back to Christ and deliver this land from the power of Absalom's. So before we begin, let us pray. Father, we thank you so much uh, for Daniel's ministry, Lord, for the prophets who um, compiled the history of Samuel, that that we would know, Lord, what happened to David and his kingdom, that we'd know how Israel fell, so that we would also know, Lord, how Israel was restored. We pray now as um, Americans whose land is under your judgment, under your heavy hand, we pray, God, that as we consider our own state and the state of our communities and our families and our culture, that you would, from your word, instruct, instruct us so that we might live according to your word, by faith, in you alone, revering you and loving you and serving you, 
the only king, the true king, the high king. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, what we're going to look at now is an elaborate conspiracy. So if you turn to 2 Samuel, we're actually going to start in chapter 14 at verse 25. There's some verses I left aside uh, that seem really out of place about Absalom and his very long hair. We're going to go back and we're going to talk about those for a second before we look at this conspiracy. Now, if you, if you are a student of conspiracy, I am, I would, I would take a lot of notes here because Absalom gives away the, the farm, essentially, here. He shows us exactly how people like him manipulate masses, the masses um, in order to take control of government and, and to have power. He shows us. So ha- learning it will help us so that we aren't likewise tricked by such men. There is an elaborate conspiracy here. It involves mass manipulation of Israel, its leaders, and its popular opinion. Absalom uses his image to impress people. He uses false piety to seduce people. And he manipulates people to control Israel and rebel against his father, the true king. Absalom's carefully crafted message, deft use of the images of power, and his moral hypocrisy put him at the head of a growing force aiming to take control of the government of Israel. And and, and listen listen to that, right? He controls what? His image? The message? And using what? Lies and false piety and things that that externally impress people. But really, what does he want? He wants control. He wants power. These are always the tactics of populist movements. A populist movement is a movement where a particularly clever politician wins over the population and, and, and get them to fall in love with him. And, and then why? To use them to, ha- to take power, to take control. Now, it begins with his well-crafted image. He's very, very careful with how he appears. Absalom. So if you turn to chapter 14, we'll look at verse 25 and 20 to 27, and we'll see what, what he's up to here, how he is carefully manicuring his image. Now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. Just beauty, beauty, beauty. What a family, huh? How presidential. Put this guy in the front of Time magazine, right? Let's run some ads with this family throwing a ball around in the park. This gorgeous man and his gorgeous family. Does that sound like anything that you've ever... Okay. See, I'm getting ahead of myself. The most famous thing about Absalom is his hair. Now, we've been talking about Absalom for several chapters now, so it seems a little weird that they would bring it up. But they're doing something very clever, the authors of this book. They want to highlight the parallels between Absalom and the two kings that have already presented themselves in the book of Samuel. Saul was introduced as choice and handsome while going to be appointed in 1 Samuel 9-2. Right before he takes the throne, it says, oh, what a handsome fellow he was. Later, right before David is announced as the king designate, it also says of him that he was ruddy and handsome. So they're, they're cueing us in here, right? The, the, the previous two characters who were considered extraordinarily handsome fellows 
then immediately went on to take control of the throne. So here Absalom, it tells us, he's a very handsome devil. And, what, and the reason is because he's about to also ascend to the throne. This is, this is a, a theme. Now Absalom's physical appearance is described just before he makes his bid for the throne. The emphasis is on his hair, and this is significant. Hair is a crown. Hair is glory. Absalom's evident pride in his hair shows him to be a man full of his own glory. Now, hair is a glory, isn't it? Women who have long, beautiful hair. Think of how much money women spend. Okay? You don't even want to know how much money I spend on this magnificent beard. Okay? Hair is glory. And I'm telling you, there, there is a sense of pride that I take in this beautiful thing. So it's not just the ladies, right? Men fall into this. Um, I, <laughs> this is, I remember, I never combed my hair until I was 37 years old. And I worked at the courthouse, and there was this devilishly good-looking man that I worked with. And I thought, you know, I could comb my hair like that. And I've been combing my hair like this ever since. Right? I was like, I, I should take a little more pride in how I look. And you know what happens when you take pride in how you look? You become very prideful. Okay? <laughs> now, Absalom's hair is so glorious that at the end of the year when he decides to go in for a trim, they literally cut it and weigh it. Okay? Now, imagine the Jerusalem Times having like that section you know, on famous people, and instead of red carpet dresses, right, the, the Met Gala, they actually have a, like, a, a hand-drawn picture of Absalom's hair and how much it weighed. This seems to be the thing in, the, in their culture that people think is amazing. Right? Why, why do we do crib tours? Right? There was a show on MTV back when I was a teenager in the 90s where famous people would take us around their homes. Who cares? Why do we care about these things? Right? But this is the, people care about celebrities and, and the weird, quirky things that they get into. So Absalom, I'm sure, he, he gets all dressed up in magnificent clothing and struts on down, and they get out the ceremonial shears, and they cut off his hair and put it on the ceremonial scale, and then everyone knows how magnificent he is. It's a, it's a very strange thing. It's not, it's not exactly what we deal with, but we deal with these kinds of things all the time. Why, who cares what a famous person wears to a dinner party and how much it costs and who made it? Well, people care about these things. Now, the comparison with Saul is particularly close. Both of these men are described as the most handsome Israelites of their day, right? Sexiest man alive. They were both distinguished by their heads. Saul, was, it tells us, was towering. He was higher than one whole head above everybody else. So that, that, that is a connection with Absalom, who now, is the emphasis is upon the hair of his head. There's a connection here. Also, it's telling us that Absalom's house is increasing while the current king's house is decreasing, right? So far, king, king David's house is getting smaller because people are dying, Meanwhile, Absalom's house is increasing, and this is what was going on at the beginning of 2 Samuel when you saw the transition from King David's house to Saul, from, from Saul to David. Saul's house was decreasing, David's house was increasing. Now, David's house is decreasing, and Absalom's house is increasing. They talk about this beautiful family that he has, because if you're going to run for office, right, you have to make sure all the little kitties look good. And, and because, right, you're going to do your political speech, and at the end, when the family comes out to hug you, you have to make sure that they're a very good-looking family. And so we're told how beautiful the whole family is. But then we're reminded that inside this beautiful family are dark, is a dark history. Because the name Tamar popping up here is supposed to be like, yeah, they may be beautiful on the outside, but everybody remember, just two chapters ago, we had familial incest and rape going on. So however, right, it may appear we, the readers, know that all is not well in the house. 
Now, Absalom builds on this external image. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 15, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, he's, he's building here a very careful image. It says, After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were a judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So he's multiplying here the image. Now, he has manipulated his way back into the king's presence, but Absalom is far from satisfied. He's now deliberately setting out to undermine the authority and respect of his father, the king. First, he acquires chariots and horses and 50 men. Now, I don't know about you, but when a guy is running for office and he rolls up in his Camry, parks it himself and gets out, that doesn't seem as impressive to me as a guy who gets out of a limo surrounded by five other cars, right? And, 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 and if you ever noticed during presidential elections, the closer it gets to the actual election, the more the limousine and the follow car and all, of this, all the trappings that go along with running for office look more and more presidential. Have you ever noticed this? Right? They show people when they're out stumping early on, they're carrying their own bags and getting on a plane. But as it gets closer and closer to the real deal, what do they want? They want big cars. And they want lots of people running around them. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a presidential motorcade. But I was walking downtown when I used to work for Steve, and, and, the, and the presidential motorcade came out of the Westin one time. Funny enough, the person riding the, the lead motorcycle for the police department was my father, which was funny all by itself. But there were like 15 police cars, three cars, the limo, three more cars, and 20 more police officers. And, and that's what he's doing. He's like, you know what I need, right? I'm not just going to go down to the store and pick up some lamb so I can make dinner for my wife. I'm going to get in my chariot. I'm going to have a chariot in front of me and a chariot behind me and all these men just running around. And, and this is contrary to what God in Deuteronomy told, he said, listen, when you have a king, do not multiply horses, do not ride in chariots, do not have men run before you. Be humbler than that, right? How did Jesus enter Jerusalem? Right? And there were people following after, but what were they doing, right? Were they an impressive lot? But yet it struck fear in the heart of the people in charge in Israel, didn't it? The only people that have ridden chariots thus far are the enemies of Israel, and they've put them down every time. But right, he wants to look like a king. And so he gets the trappings of, of other kings from other nations, the chariots and the men running before them, because he wants to look a certain way. He wants to impress people. And yet he's violating the law of God. He can go on and argue that he's trying to uphold the law. And, oh, man, if I could just give justice to people, well, what's with the chariots? Right? People are impressed with this crap, though, aren't they? We're impressed with people looking presidential and powerful. Why is it that dictators like to give speeches in front of missiles? Right? And every time I see an American president giving a speech in front of two parked F-15s, I think this is nonsense. It is. It's nonsense. This is a power play. But this works on people, doesn't it? It works on people. When you go to a sporting event in this country, 
I, re- I remember feeling this way. I hadn't been to a UW football game in a while, and I went, and I was like, I'm not really sure who's showing their prowess. The United States government with the flyovers and the military bands or the athletes who are running out onto the field barking like dogs. I was like, I'm, not, I'm impressed sort of with everybody here. <laughs> I'm not, I want to follow all of these guys. I want to be just like these young men. I want to be, look at this power, this demonstration of power. And this is what Absalom is wrapped up in. But the problem is he looks not like a king in Israel is supposed to look. He looks like the kings of the nations. But it works. It works. There's a reason people do this. And the reason they do it is because it works. Straight up. He's collecting all this regalia. He's collecting all of this image in order to impress people, and it's working. Now, the other thing that Absalom would do is intercept people coming to the capital to put their cases before David. As we've seen, right? remember the woman of Tekoa came before the, the king himself to make an argument. She had a case that she wanted the king to judge because this is what is supposed to happen. The king is supposed to hear cases. He's not supposed to be living off in a palace away from the people. He's supposed to be somebody that you can walk in there and talk to. And, and funny enough, back when the White House, um, back when the White House first was there, I, I, Adams was the first president to live in it. But Jefferson was the next president, and he used to have big block of cheese day. He would have this giant one-ton thing of cheese in the foyer of the White House, and, and he would let visitors come in, and he would chat with them, and they would eat cheese. I'm not making the story up. Okay? You used to be able to walk up to the White House and knock on the front door. And, and funny enough, Adams used to, he couldn't afford servants, so he would answer it himself. And people thought he was a servant, because <laughs> he looked like one. But it's the President of the United States answering the front door. Right? That story with the woman from Dakota, wasn't, wasn't we, she goes right in. Who is she? How does she get this kind of access? Well, this is the kind of king you're supposed to have. And so Absalom goes down and stays by the gate, figures out who's going up to see him and says, well... He hasn't appointed anyone to see people. What tribe are you from, by the way? Oh, you're from Judah. Okay, go on. Go on up. What, what tribe are you from? Well, I'm from Benjamin. Oh, there's no one to answer your questions. Because it, it, it is subtle. But what he's actually doing is filtering out by tribe. And he's saying, listen, some of you, there's systemic racism going on here. Okay, some of you are, are, are not from the tribe of Judah, and so you don't get access. He's letting the people from Judah go up. Why? Because as we've already been reading, there's all these tensions between the tribe of Judah and, and what tribe was Samuel of? Benjamin. There's tensions between the tribes. And, and they keep having these dust-ups. If you go back through First and Second Samuel, th- there's tensions between the tribes. The tribalism of the country is something that Absalom knows about, and it's something that he's using to his advantage. He's filtering who has access says, well, some of you do not have a voice in this country. Some of you do not have access to ju- the, the justice system. And only if I were king, I would fix it. He's lying to them, and he's manipulating them. And why? Because it works. It works. Right? I mean, I, I, I love everybody. This is now what I say right before I say something super controversial. But race relations in this country before we had a black president were much better. Right? But, but manipulating the, the tensions that have existed in the country going back to the beginning is, is part of what some people in this country have been doing for a, for a while now. In the 90s, I don't remember having any kind of racial problems. Right? And it's not just because I'm a blind white guy. I, I don't remember having the kind of problems we're having 20 years ago. My parents don't remember these kinds of problems in the, in the 80s. Why? Because this kind of thing works. Works. 
It works. We don't have a voice in this country. We're not heard in this country. We're not, we're not given access to the, to the levers of power in this country. And, and when people fall for this stuff, it works. It works. Absalom also goes on, right? He has the chariot. He has the 50 guys running in front of him. So then everybody does what he actually wants them to do, which is kneel in front of him. He says, oh, no, no, no. Don't do that, brother. And he takes him by the hand and he shakes, right? And he gives him a hug because he's just a regular guy, right? You can't get near the king, but here I am. And don't, don't bow to me, we don't, right? We're not formal like that. Well, he shouldn't be letting people bow to him anyway because he's not the king. But he's gotten them to bow to him, which is a bad sign. But then he says, oh, no, look how humble I am. Don't do that. Let's embrace. And this is like when, right? It's coming, probably next spring. Politicians will come down off of, out of Washington, D.C. and descend on Iowa and start eating French fries with the local yokels. Have you guys noticed this in elections? This is always how it starts. Somebody going to the famous burger joint and eating ice cream with the regular old guys. Right? We're going down to Pittsburgh, and we're all the iron workers. Have lunch, and let's head on down there and just be a normal, regular guy. And you're like, that guy doesn't even have a wallet to pay for his own meal. Because he has handlers and servants and an entourage. This is crazy what he's doing here. But why is he doing it? It works. Right? He just looks like a regular guy. Oh, don't bow to me. I'm nobody special. Don't f- forget the chariot and the 50 dudes that ran in in front of me, but whatever. <laughs> now, uppermost, uppermost in Absalom's mind, of course, is his own importance rather than the responsibility of making just judgments. It's interesting because in Deuteronomy 25.1, it says, If there is a dispute between men and they come into our court, and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. That's what they're supposed to do. That's what King David does. He listens to a, a, a case, and he gives justice. But if you notice what Absalom says, is he, he says to everyone, your case is just and right. Well, everyone's case can't be just and right. And if you don't pay attention, you miss this fact. How is it that everyone he meets is in the right? And, and again, right? If, 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 he, if you and I are in a dispute... And we head up to Jerusalem together, and he stops you, before, right? And I don't know what he said to you. He says to you, oh, your, your case is good and right. And then I come that, uh, later that day, and he, he says to me, your case is good and right. Will, will both parties go away thinking that they were in the right? Yes. He, he, he's not actually judging correctly uh, 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 according to the word of God. He's making biased judgments, and he's calling all things equal, and he has... He is, again, manipulating people. If everyone's right, no one's right. right. If everyone's wrong, no one's wrong. He's calling wickedness goodness and goodness wickedness. He's completely confusing what's right and what's wrong. Now, does that sound like any government you've ever heard of? <laughs> and this is what he's doing. He's being extraordinarily careful. It tells us that he's, this takes four years. This is very methodical. This is very careful planning. He knows exactly what he's up to, and it's working. It says that he steals the hearts of the men, right? This beautiful man, with this beautiful long hair, and his big old chariot, and all of his troops, and his justice. He steals their hearts. How could he not steal their hearts? Now, has your heart ever been stolen by a politician? Huh? Oh, here's the judge. Here's the county commissioner. Here's the congressman or congresswoman. Here's the president that's going to finally get us out of this. Look at how presidential he looks. Look at the size of that limo. And he always, he's always talking about law and order, so he must mean it. 
right? You, you, you might possibly live in a country where for an entire summer you can burn down city after city, destroying private property, right, preventing people from going about their business, and then a bunch of morons run into the, to the Capitol building one afternoon and do a little bit of damage, and, and that is the worst public display right, of rebellion that the country has ever seen. Forget the fact that we just spent the summer of love burning half the country down. Right? What? Like, there's nothing new under the sun. Absalom is doing, right? Tyrants are going to tyrant. That's what they're going to do. Manipulators are going to manipulate. That's what they do. And, and what I, what I want to say is that we have, right? Why is it that we thought that Trump was going to save us? Why did we think that? And, I, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm asking an honest question. Weren't we just like all, right? Can you imagine people honestly going in and voting for Biden? Can you actually, can you imagine? I can. You know why? Because people voted for Trump. <laughs> I, I, and, and if you go back, the clown show that we've had going on in this country goes back how far? Right? The actor who became the president. I know I'm not supposed to ever say anything bad about Reagan. And then you got the Bush family, who, who was there, and the Clinton family, and you got these two warring families, like it's some, like, it, like, like we're going back to the, the, um, the Pope, <laughs> the families that were, were going back and forth, taking over who is Pope and who's not Pope, it was like the same two families warring in Italy for like 300 years. And we look back on them and we think, look at those idiots. And then how many times were Bushes and Clintons on the ballots? And we're like, no, 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 it's, the, it's those guys who are manipulated. It's those guys. I, I'll admit, I worked on Bush's campaign twice. Now, I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I will tell you this. I was like, man, he looks presidential, and he acts presidential, and he's tough, right? And every time he does those speeches in front of those F-15s, I'm just like, this is what man is right here. And we, we get sucked into this. And they keep running this play on us. Right? You, you have these people who, who get people, like these uh, specialists who run elections. And you know that they, they can work on a Democrat election and get, get some Republicans elected and they go back and forth. You know why? Because they know how to manipulate people. Right? The, the, <laughs> there are people who are good at getting people elected and they go back and forth between parties. And we think that there's these solid lines, right? Over here on the right, over here on the left, and either they're very different. But why is it that the people who get them elected go back and forth between the two groups? Because we're sheep. And we hate that. We're not sheep. Well, but, but Jesus says we're sheep. We act like sheep, right? And, and in the absence of someone like Jesus, right, in our idolatry, what we go for is a mirage, right? <laughs> Jesus shows up, and nobody wants him to be king. Why? He doesn't look like it. He doesn't act like it. Where's his chariot? He's so humble. He's washing people's feet. Peter's got his sword. He's like, when are we going to take control of this place? When are we going to act presidential? When are we going to go out there and, the, and we have these mobs, these masses of people that are following us around? When are we going to lead these people in the direction that this country ought to go and crush our enemies? And everybody is confused by who and what Jesus is when he comes. Okay? And, and this, we, we, we confuse the two Jesuses. Because we know where he is now, and we know what he's doing now, and we know what he looks like now. But when he was on the earth, and he's making the case for his kingdom, 
right? He, he put aside all the glory. Why? Because we're easily taken in by it. If he would have descended out of heaven and he looked like he did on the, on the day of um, transformation, I'm sorry, transfiguration, we all would have been like, yes, look at this guy with his shining eyes and his bronze legs. But he had to set all of that aside. Why? Because that easily throws people. That easily sucks people in. It always has. It always will. And what, what we need to be are people who rise above these manipulative tactics and not let ourselves fall into the squabbles and, and get sucked in by these populists. We need to stop falling for it. He steals the heart of the people. Of course he does. Leaders like this who know how to manipulate always do. And Jesus comes, and he doesn't look right. He doesn't sound right. He doesn't do the right things. Yet it's true and right and good. Right? <laughs> this is what I'm, Okay. So you take Titus Andronicus, who was a general in, in, in Rome at the time. And he comes in with, on his horse with his armor and his men. And then you bring Jesus out of Nazareth, and you stand him next to Titus Andronicus. And we all think that we would pick Jesus. But we would pick Titus Andronicus. We would. We think we're different, but we're not. If you were living in Israel, you'd be like, Absalom finally is going to give us the right-wing judges that we need. Absalom's going to get, right? He wants real law and order. He wants real justice. Look at how beautiful his hair is. That's glory. And we fall for it. And you look around the, the world, what are people falling for? How did Putin ever come into office? How do men like Trump actually come into office? Okay, now we've gotten through, through him lots of things that, better than what we deserve. Some of the things that we got from him. But literally, we think that that, he's not an Absalom, right, with his hair? Anyway, okay, I was, I was trying not to go too direct with the, <laughs> that magnificent bronze skin. Anyway. But Absalom is not finished. We go on and we see in verse 7 through 9. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Haram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. <laughs> Wait, didn't, he, didn't Absalom want to, want to have a party? out? Right? Didn't he want to go out to the sheep shearers before? Didn't he want to go out and lead people like Moses wanted to outside of Israel to another place to have a, 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 to have a party? Didn't he do this once already? And didn't that result in a murder? I, I'm just trying to remember from two chapters ago. Four years ago is a long <laughs> Four years is a long time. Like, and here's another one I'm going to say. It. Joe Biden has been in government for what, 40 years? And people think that he's going to go to Washington and clean it up. Like, and, and I mean, I, I'm sorry. For, for, yes, right? You, you think about these people where you, everybody suddenly forgets what happened just four years ago. We forget what happened four decades ago. We forget that these people have records and that you can go and you can read them. And they think that we're all just going, right? Well, look at him now with his American flag pin on his shirt. He looks so president. Look at him with his gray hair and his respectability until he starts sniffing people. At the end of four years is a long time and people have forgotten a great deal. And it's to their shame. Now, what we have here is something that, that strikes a little closer to home for all of us, I think. 
because he says he has to go and pay a vow. Okay, well, if you have a vow to pay to the Lord, he's delivered you and he's brought you back into Israel, why did he wait four years? If he's so zealous for the, for the glory of the Lord, why did he wait four years? Do people who are zealous for the glory of the Lord wait four years to pay a vow? That right there should have been, <laughs> David would have been like, whoa, 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 whoa. I make a vow before I'm even done saying the vow, I'm, I'm fulfilling the vow. Right? Back in my, in my height. Back in my heyday. Why are you waiting so long? No, no, no. David doesn't ask questions about that because he's tricked. Now, Hebron is where Absalom was born. It's also where David was first made king. So again, remember the image thing. If you're going to declare yourself a king and overthrow the current government, he wants to go back to where it all started for David. And, and what he's trying to do is relive David's glory days. He wants to be associated with David in his glory days. That's why he chooses Hebron. He's still thinking of his image. But it should be very weird all of a sudden that he wants to do this. Now, American fundamentalists are very easily manipulated by this, this kind of thing that he's doing here. Okay? I, I remember, I, I hear stories about Nixon when he was the president. And the evangelical ministers all used to go and have prayer breakfast with them, and everyone was super, 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 super impressed with his piety. And then those secret tapes were released, and apparently he's dropping F-bombs like every... And all these American evangelicals who had voted for the guy, thinking he's as pure as the driven snow, are shocked to find out that he talks like a sailor. Now, I, I hear that story when you, when you study the history of American politics. How was he so easily duped, right? Why is it that Joe Biden wants to be a Catholic sometimes? Why does Nancy Pelosi? Why was Nixon having prayer? Why do they have prayer breakfasts? Why, towards the end of his presidency, did, did um, Trump go out and stand in front of a church with a, with a Bible in his hands? Well, whose Bible was that? I don't think it was his. <laughs> I, just, I, don't, I don't believe it. He wants to look very pious. He wants to look very holy. And, 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 and this is what happens, right? Suddenly when, on the election, you go from, from the blue-collar diner where all the miners are, are hanging out in Pittsburgh down to church on Sunday. And look how pious they all are. And then you get somebody on there who actually knows them, and they're like, you know, that guy hasn't been in church in three years. This is one of my favorite political jokes, okay? Robert Edward Lee, the general of the Southern Armies, went, faithfully went to church every Sunday. Abraham Lincoln didn't become a Christian until 10 years after he died. <laughs> That's actually not a joke. Um, but this is what happens, right? We have these saints. We saint. We, we, we think that the Catholics were the only ones with saints. But Americans and their politicians, we do the same thing. And we are easily duped by shows of piety. Oh, look how pious that guy is. Mm, beautiful. He, want, he, just wants to, he just wants to pay his vow. He just loves Jesus. And this is something not only that we fall for, it's something that we do. Right? This is called pietism. I'm going to say the right things, do the right things, and I'm going to fulfill my vows, and I'm going to talk this way, and I'm going to talk about justice, and I'm going to talk about mercy, and I'm going to talk about all the right things, but really, in our heart of hearts, we're planning rebellion. Now, if you go back, the first man and woman did this, Genesis 3-7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, because they thought they could hide their shame. They, could, they thought they could hide what they did with, with, with leaves. Now, later, the Lord God makes coverings for them because they do need to be covered. There is shame there. There is guilt. There is sin. There is death. It needs to be covered, and they're making their own coverings. This is what people do. They hide what they're really doing and what they're really up to and what they really desire behind an external show of piety. 
Proverbs 7, verses 14 to 15. This is the harlot. I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. Right? And then she goes on to describe what her bedroom looks like and invites him to it. Well, good thing she went to church first. Now, Christ said to the Pharisees and scribes in Matthew 23, 27 to 28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, when outwardly appear, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, these are the leaders we get because this is the people that we are. This is who we've become. And, and I may not be talking about you as an individual. I might. I am talking about us as a people. We have the leaders we deserve because the leaders are just like us. Externally, whitewashed tombs. Externally, I'll pay my vows. I'll do the things that look good. I'll do the things that, that get me, right? I'll talk about it in front of people. I'll do all this external show of my religion. And inside, I'm a rebel. Inside, I'm lawless. Inside, I'm planning to overthrow. Pietism, initially, pietism was a movement within the Lutheran Church in Germany that sought to correct the reduction of the faith to mere assent to doctrine. The pietists believe that led to dead orthodoxy, right? We don't want to just think thoughts in our heads. We're going to do the right thing. Now, that's noble, right? This is a noble beginning. This is how these things start. Pietism, Methodists, it all starts in a good way. Let's actually, like, let's not just say it. Let's mean it. But eventually what happens with pietism and American um, fundamentalism is, is the emphasis is on holy living that characterizes pietism fostered a heightened preoccupation with ridding oneself of sin by refusing to engage in popular pastimes. That's what pietism became. Now, originally they were like, no, let's say the right things and do the right things. Let's actually live out our religion. That's how it started. And in the end, they say, hey, listen, we don't, have wine. we don't drink wine. We don't smoke. I don't lie. I don't, I don't have a Facebook account, you heathens. Well, I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about this imaginary person. Right? They don't do, the, right? They, what they really aren't doing isn't living out the law of, of Jesus in, in, in front of people before the face of God. What they do is they, is they don't engage in what they think are unpious activities. Right? So you got a guy, he's clean-cut, good-looking guy, maybe like Absalom, pays his bills, takes care of his family, doesn't chew, drink, right? He's not out smoking. He's not out gambling. Doesn't have, he, does, he doesn't waste his time with social media. No way. He eats all the right things, does all the right things. And a person like that, live, right, those people live amongst us. Those people are us. They, they never talk about their spiritual problems. They never ask for prayer for anything. They never discuss their sins. You never hear them talk in any real meaningful way, like Psalm 51. But what you see all the time is an external show of righteousness, according to, what? Pietism from the 20th century. Not the Law of Moses. Not the Sermon on the Mount. Not the Book of James. And I think this one we fall for more than the others that I have mentioned because it is us. Right? I, you know, how many politicians run this game and we're like, oh, he's a Christian. I remember serious Christians making serious arguments to me that Donald J. Trump was a Christian. Even now, you want to debate it with me. Even now, some of you are like, but, 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 
right? He's like Abraham Lincoln, though. He didn't, he didn't really become a Christian until he won office in this regard. We fall for this because it is us. We want leaders just like us, right? Outward, well, he goes to church. <laughs> I, re- <laughs> I remember this one time, there's this video of Trump, and he's, <clears throat> he's in church, and the plate comes out, and he gets out this huge wad of, like, hundreds, and he just, like, drops it in there. You're like, oh, <laughs> you didn't see the giant camera. You didn't see the giant camera? Okay. We fall for this kind of stuff because it is us. Whitewashed tombs. Now, what's odd is that David, who has always been so wise and discerning, is sitting here and he's falling for all this line of crap. Oh, you have to pay vows, my, my, my precious, righteous son. Go forth. Go forth and pay your vows. Go in peace. He's saying, go in peace to the man who's going to plan war. Now, doesn't that describe us? We say peace, peace, right, to those who want to make war upon us. Right now, there are people calling for, what are they calling it? COVID amnesty? COVID amnesty. Have you heard of this? This is a thing. They, listen, hey, guys, you know, we were all in the dark. Mistakes were made on both sides. Can't we just let bygones be bygones? Forgive one another? Right? That's the Christian thing to do. Love your neighbor. You're like, okay, sure. Um, if you want to talk about loving our neighbor, let, let's talk about restitution. Let's talk about the fact that you're going to give people their jobs back and pay them all the money that they weren't paid all that time that you took their job from them. Now, if you want to talk about that, let's talk amnesty. Let's do it, baby. I love me some amnesty. I love to just cover sins. That's actually what I'm in this business for. But what you're talking about is not forgiveness. What you're talking about is telling rebels peace. And that what they're going to do when you say peace to them is go out and plan your destruction. And you don't know how many... Christian leaders are on Twitter, on social media, in the news, falling for this. Calling on us to just, well, you know, be like Jesus and forgive. And it's not Christian. It's not, it's not ethically sound. And it's destructive. And it's saying peace to people who are then going to just go plan the next thing they're going to try to do to shut our churches down. To take our jobs and businesses from us. Now, the end of the story here is what? Well, fruition, right? We, uh, he sows, Absalom sows, and then he reaps a great deal from all of this hard work. He's a very diligent conspirator. Conspirators usually are the best. Conspirators in history are always extremely diligent people. And they set their face towards it, and they go, and they go there. And, and what we find is that it actually works for them. So it says, starting in verse 10, But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gileanite, David's counselor from the city of Galo, and the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing." Now, there's a couple of things here. One, why did he take 200 people, why did he take 200 leading men with him? Well, for two reasons. One, once he declares himself king and grabs after the, the, the throne, David is going to be deprived of 200 of the leading men of Jerusalem, people he would probably arm, people he would probably take advice from. 
Now, I just want to talk about this because this is super manipulative what he does. These guys go, and, they, and, and in their innocence, they go to this party, and they have no idea what's coming. But how, right, if, you're, <laughs> if you've sown as much discord as he has sown, how many people are going to believe them? Oh, you went out there to this huge rally having no earthly idea what was coming. And they're there, and what they either don't want to speak up because they don't want to be murdered. We know that Absalom murders people at parties. And two, they're now forced to join it because no one's going to believe them. So if I go back to the king, he's not going to believe me. He's going to put me to death. If I say anything now, now this in policing works. This is a policing move. You pick up a gang member and you say, listen, you're going to tell me everything. And they say, I'm not going to tell you anything. And you say, okay, well, what I'm going to do is drop you off on the corner and throw a couple hundreds at you and say, thank you for your testimony, and then drive away. And there on the corner will be all your little gang friends. And so police do this. And you know how fast that guy goes running back to the police station to actually be a snitch? Like, right? It's, it's very, 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 very clever way of doing it. We're going to put you in a position where you kind of have to go along with what you're doing because nobody's going to believe that you didn't know what you were doing at this big rally. Nobody is going to believe after I drop you off on the corner that you aren't a snitch. And so you might as well become a snitch. Nobody's going to believe that they weren't rebels, and so they might as well become rebels. And, and, the, and how did these men end up in this situation? Right? I feel for them. I understand them. And I have, to, I have to say, of all of the people in this story, this is also a lot of us. We end up in these compromised positions. We end up in these situations, well, I guess I'll take the lesser of two evils. Anybody said that to themselves on election day in the last 25 years? Well, I mean, I could either really be a rebel or I could be put to death. <laughs> I could go back and try to make a case and stand up for myself and be put to death, or I could just become a rebel, I guess. I'll just join in. Now, the last thing here is the man who joins him. Now, if you've been keeping track of who Ahithophel is, it's Bathsheba's grandfather. It's the counselor who, later on in this book, they're going to tell us that his voice is like the voice of God. His counsel is so solid. And that man is hiding out here in a city nearby, and he comes and he joins the conspiracy right now at its peak. Now, how did did David lose this guy whose voice is like the voice of God? Through his, right? You can see, what we sow, we reap. Right? The, the, the sword will not leave your house, David. Nathan came and said, what is coming is the judgment of God, and what's coming is Absalom, who's manipulating everyone, who's, who's stealing authority, and, and David is doing nothing but helping him along. Well, I've isolated this man who was a faithful servant because I slept with his granddaughter and murdered his, his grandson-in-law. Right? I've helped Absalom all along. I'm right here in the center of every single one of these conspiracies, including go- saying, peace, peace, to the man who's now going to go and plan war. This is what happens to nations. This is what happens to people. This is what happens to populaces of, of nations. Right? We get manipulated. We're taken in. We fall for all the wrong people and all the wrong external regalia of power and prestige and piety. And, and, we're, and, and, right? and some people we turn our back on because they're sinners. Right? Should he join this rebellion because of what David had done? No. Does it make sense to us that he would? Yes. Yes. It, it's, 
I fault him, but it's hard. It's one of those times in the Bible where I'm like, you know, of all the people I want to put some blame on, I'm going to do it reluctantly with this guy. Because sin, repentance, forgiveness, justice, wisdom, clarity, it's all confused now. And why? Because David, instead of going out with his troops, David, instead of being satisfied with the wives he already had, David, David, David. We're here because of David. And in the absence of good men, bad men will rise up and do bad things. Now, we are in a nation led by Absalom's. We ourselves have been taken in, right? We ourselves have been taken in to, to these tribal conflicts where we're being manipulated. We have no trust in the system, right? The sins, the sins of people we do not forgive. There are certain sins you just don't forgive, right? Like, like this counselor, like Bathsheba's grandfather. David went too far. And people are not dealing with things, and people are easily manipulated. And, and, and Americans in the United States are in exactly this position. And civil war is coming. So what do we do then? Right? We, we heard what was read for us this morning. There's these rams that arise, and they seem powerful. They're fighting one another, and, it, and, and stars are falling out of the sky. It's chaos out there. It's chaos. They're, they're talking about nuclear war. And I mean, I really, really thought for a little while there that nobody would ever really consider that. I mean, part of the reason everyone has nukes is so that nobody will use them. And now we're literally, in my lifetime, talking about it. And I do recall in the 80s having to hide under my desk at school during <laughs> these nuclear bomb. Remember this? You, you'd practice exiting for a fire. you practice getting under your desk. You know what a desk would do in a nuclear explosion? Yeah. Nothing. But for the last 20 seconds of my life, I would feel great. I'd feel very safe. Now, now, I grew up in, in the 90s in globalism, and right? if, if, if um, goods don't cross borders, armies cross borders. This is a famous line. If goods don't cross borders, armies cross borders. And there's all this economic fellowship, and we're all working hard together, and everybody's got a nuke, so nobody's going to use them. Okay, now you're in our own country, right? There are people who, have, who are manipulating us, who are using us, who are turning our head this way and that. And, and, and they are the leaders that we deserve. Just like Nathan came to David and said, this is the judgment that's coming. The judgment that is, right? It's not that judgment will come. It is already here. And why they're writing this book is to teach people how to get out of the jam that they're in. How did Israel get here? Unrepentant sin, unrepentant sin, unrepentant sin. Brokenness and death that comes from sin. Turn back to God, turn to his word, turn, right, to him and, rest, and restore people and forgive and, and build um, a life based on the word of God. If we return to God and his word, if we cry out to him, if we repent of our sins, if we say that, you know, there is no king but, he, but Jesus, if we get back to that, now I know that sounds like Christian nationalism. Okay, there is no king but Jesus. And if you stop falling for all of this manipulative political crap that is just consuming our lives at this point. Now, what's funny is that what I want you to do is go and vote. <laughs> That's the conclusion to the whole sermon. That's what I want you but, right? But I want you to vote in repentance. That's a different kind of voting. I want you to, right, with fear and trepidation. Because... How did they overturn Roe versus Wade? 
You go back, and I feel like one of those conspiracy theorists, where you take all the events of the last five years, and I'm tying red strings to different things that occurred, and I'm like, how did, they, how did they pull this off? Well, there is someone who is conspiring against evil and wickedness in this world, and it's really hard to figure out what he's done and what he's doing. But we know he's good. We know that he rules the nations. We know that he wants us to disciple them. We know that he wants us to live in obedience and faith to him. And so I don't want you to go to the ballot thinking, this is how we're going to fix our problems. I know exactly the way forward. Because you've spent your adult lives absolutely manipulated. And and it's happened. And I want you to go to the ballot box in fear and trepidation of, of putting your authority and putting your hope and putting your faith in yourself or in the people on the ballot. The Lord Jesus Christ overturned Roe versus Wade. It's insane. It's absolutely insane that it happened, but it happened. And so we need to say, listen, I don't know myself, and I don't know what is the right thing to do, but I'm going to, with my sanctified wisdom, make the best decision that I can, and I'm going to do it with fear and trembling. I'm going to do it with faith in you, the living God, who can do wondrous things, amazing things through, through fools, right? Through orange men with fancy hair. He works all things out for good. He's doing it now. So don't be taken in and don't look for a savior at the ballot box. It is your duty to do it and do it with fear and trembling and faith. Looking not to it, but to the one who is at the right. Right? That election's already been secured. Right? We're not going to find out in the dead of night, 40,000 ballots were cast for Satan in the end. Right? It is a, the most secure right, ascension to a throne of all time. And he is there, and he's not going anywhere. And look to him, and by faith, right, seeking him, seeking his glory and his goodness, go to the ballot box. And as we go from here, look, look for the things that we've discussed in the sermon, and how they use them to manipulate you, and to convince you that there is some other Savior than the Lord Jesus Christ, some other Lord who's going to save you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your mercy and kindness to us, Lord. We know that you are the Lord of heaven and earth, that all authority uh, in heaven and on earth is yours. We know, Lord, that you are um, the the, the ruling and reigning king. Lord, we uh, confess now that we have been greatly manipulated. We we, um, look to many things to, to be our Lord and to be our Savior other than you. And I pray, God, that as we go from here, that we would be honest patriots, that we would consider that, we, uh, that this nation of ours, Lord, is our home away from home, that you are our king, that Jerusalem above is our mother, and she is free. And I pray, Lord God, that we would love the tribes of this world and the nations of this world, that we would seek to disciple them and, and, and seek to shape them according to your law, your purpose, your will. I pray that we would vote in faith, by faith, and with fear, of the living God from which wisdom comes. In Jesus' name we pray, and amen.